Please, congregation, turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel according to John, page 1127, the Adoration Bibles. The Gospel according to John, read verses 6 through 13. You'll remember from last week that John took us behind the curtain, as it were, to a place long before Bethlehem to see the majestic Christ of Christmas as he shined forth in transcendent glory with the Father. But now this morning, John brings us into redemptive history to see with our eyes, to see with our, hear with our ears a voice crying out in the wilderness, the voice of, of John the Baptist. It dawned on me a couple days ago that it was actually a year ago this Sunday that I was first behind this pulpit, also preaching a message on the birth of John the Baptist. And now in God's providence, we consider briefly, in the first point of our sermon at least, the witness of John the Baptist from 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So far, God's reading, the reading of his word this morning, may bless it to us as we meditate upon it this morning. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'd imagine that for many of us, it is everybody is enjoyable to, to give a gift as it is to receive one. It's a great joy, isn't it, to, to watch as your child or as your wife or your brother and sister eagerly unwraps the present from underneath the Christmas tree. And doesn't it, it gladden our hearts to see their, their eyes light up with joy and excitement when they receive just the thing they need or just that very thing they really wanted? Oftentimes, the gifts that we give can be a reflection of who we are. Sometimes, the perfect gift expresses thoughts that words cannot really describe. Sometimes, gifts serve to strengthen the words that we're saying, like when a young man buys a ring for the love of his life, that ring expresses something of his desire, of his love, of his intentionality, of his commitment. And because gifts are oftentimes an expression of the love and the care that we have for someone else, it's always a wonderful thing when those gifts are received with joy and excitement. But have you ever had it where just the opposite happened, where you gave a gift that was not received with the joy and excitement you were hoping for? I remember many years ago, a big, heavy box sitting under the Christmas tree with my sister's name on. I want to say she was in third or fourth grade. And come Christmas Eve, she eagerly unwraps this big, heavy present only to find a sewing machine. Now, for a girl with three brothers who wasn't the most girly girl of girls, a sewing machine was not something she was very interested in. And so the joy of unwrapping that big, heavy present finally turned into disappointment that her face was not able to hide. Perhaps some of you are familiar with The analogy oftentimes used by Paul Tripp, who who speaks of children opening up big Christmas presents only to play with the box rather than with the toy. 
And that hurts, doesn't it? Because we put much thought into choosing just the right gift that they'll really enjoy, and then they, they shrug it off to the side and play with the box instead. Well, here in our text this morning, we're confronted with a similar scenario, aren't we? John tells that the true light was, was coming into the world, the, the greatest gift that God could ever give the world. But the world did not know him, and his own people did not receive him. God had, had set his gaze on, on a dark world, a world of sin and death. He set his gaze on, on a wicked world, and God saw that what they needed more than anything else was the light of life. But the light that the world so desperately needed was met with great resistance and rejection because in their sin, rebellion against God, fallen humanity loves the darkness and hates the light. Just like in Plato's allegory of the cave, men would sooner kill the light bearer than acknowledge the foolishness of their ways. They would choose instead the the shackles of shadows over the liberation that only the light is able to bring. And so the Spirit of Christ reveals to us not only here the, the gracious heart of Christ for a wicked world like ours, but also the Spirit of Christ confronts us with the obstinate heart, the hard heart of humanity which the prophet Jeremiah so aptly described by saying, the heart of man is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, Thankfully, people of God, the Lord understands. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind, Jeremiah writes. In his infinite grace and mercy, God gives new hearts. He gives new minds, new wills to embrace this, the light of the world. Boys and girls, you remember from last week how we heard about the majestic Christ of Christmas. John gave us a glimpse at Christ's transcendent glory from before the foundation of the world, how he was in the beginning with God, how he was God, and how all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. We saw his majesty demands something of us. It demands all our adoration, all our praise. When we consider the transcendent glory that he shared with his father from before the foundation of the world. But here in verses 6 through 13, boys and girls, John tells us that the majestic Christ of Christmas is also the rejected Christ of Christmas. Because when God's greatest gift, when the majestic Lord of glory finally enters into the world, He is not embraced as he should be, but he is resisted and rejected by the very ones whom he came to save. And of course, when we examine our own hearts, this morning we consider our own sins and failures in the last week, we must confess that that we too have resisted him, haven't we? Haven't we also resisted the the Spirit of Christ working in our hearts, calling us to confess our sins, to, to walk in obedience and faith? Certainly, we can give thanks to God this morning that his grace in the hearts of his own people is indeed irresistible in the end, at least for his own. Those whom he has chosen will not resist the grace of God. And we can praise God that the rejected Christ of Christmas has not rejected us. That the rejected Christ of Christmas has not, he he will not reject us. 
And that's the good news of the gospel this morning. So we ponder in our hearts this light of the world, the light of Christmas, noticing that it was first of all revealed, that it was second of all rejected, and finally that it was received. The rejected Christ of Christmas has not rejected us. Before John tells us that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, he first tells us that this word of gospel is, is a signaling of the turning of the page in redemptive history. A new day is dawning in redemptive history, a day of, of prayers answered, a day of fulfillment of promise, a day of gracious revelation. In verses 6 through 8, we read that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to, to bear witness about the light that, that all might believe through him. He, of course, was not the light, but he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. According to Luke chapter 1, John the Baptist was was set onto the scene of redemptive history in order to to make ready for the Lord a people prepared, to, to prepare the people of Israel for the coming of Christ. After centuries of silence, God finally has something new, something wonderful to say. 400 years have passed since the prophet Malachi. It's been 400 years of bondage to foreign powers, 400 years of faith diminishing and and whittling away in the land of Israel as more and more begin to, to relinquish and to let go of God's promises, as more and more begin to live increasingly like the world. As you may recall from last week in Matthew chapter 2, right now King Herod is seated on the throne. Herod, not, not a man after God's own heart, not a man from David or even from Judah, but, but an Edomite, a man from the line of Esau, a wicked king. Dark days for Israel. Dark days where many of their own religious leaders are also so corrupt that they have gutted the message of grace out of the Old Testament scriptures, twisting God's message of salvation into a system of works. Rather than calling upon God by his covenant name, Yahweh, which which is an expression of his grace, of his mercy, of his loving relationship with his people, they, they insist that you must refer to him as the eternal one. You may only refer to him as the living one, they would say. God was no longer to be viewed, according to these religious leaders, as the loving father of Hosea chapter 11, but rather as one who's always looking over your shoulder, counting your works, counting your words. I can say it this way, boys and girls, they turned the God of the Bible, they turned the God of grace, the covenant God of Israel, into Santa Claus. He's got a list, he's checking it twice. Gonna find out who's naughty or nice. So you better be nice or else. This was the message of the religious leaders of their day, dark days in Israel. And so the faith of the faithful is by now just barely hanging on by a thread. But in order to to make sure that the few and faithful might be ready for Christ, God sent forth a forerunner. He sends forth the last and the greatest Old Testament prophet to, to make them ready. When he announced this very thing to Zechariah and Elizabeth in their barrenness, in their spiritual despair, he spoke of this forerunner, John the Baptist, saying that he would be great before the Lord, that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. 
that he would go before the Messiah to make ready for the Lord a people prepared, that he would turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, that he would turn the hearts of the foolish to the wisdom of the just. Just as Malachi had foretold in the last chapter of his prophecy, According to our past this morning, he came as a messenger sent from God himself with a specific task to bear witness about the light in order that all might believe through him. His name was John, which means the Lord is gracious or the Lord gives. And so even his, his name was to be a testament not only to his task but also to his message. His name is a testament to his message to the reality that God is, is finally intervening for Israel. That he's finally stepping in. That God had not forgotten Israel. That God was still a God of grace. And so John the Baptist comes on the scene to say, brace yourselves. Brace yourselves because the fullness of this grace has finally come. And so he is the last and the greatest Old Testament prophet. Our Lord himself says that in Matthew chapter 11 when he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen none so great as John the Baptist. Because all the earlier prophets of the Old Testament, you see, said that the Christ is coming, the Christ is coming. But John the Baptist comes and his name means the Lord is gracious. He says, the Christ has come. He is here. You see the heart of God in all this congregation. God sent forth John, this, this messenger, because it was his desire, it was his intention to, to restore sinners to himself. So that sinners like you and me might, might be made more inclined to, to embrace this light of the world. And this is what Christmas is all about, isn't it? God bending over backwards, as it were, to, to save a sinful people like us. To draw us to himself. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And although God had, had given them flickers of that light throughout the Old Testament of the prophets, and although he had, he had spoken good and, and gracious things to them, in these last days, as Hebrews said, God was going to speak to this people in a way he had never done before, speaking to them in his own beloved son who would, who would be a bearer of the exact radiance of God's glory. God had spoken graciously through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and everyone else. But in the person of Christ, the great, our chief prophet, sinners are brought face to face with God himself And this is what we should be celebrating this Christmas. We consider how, how God has not at all been stingy in his salvation, has he? The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And this isn't so amazing, congregation, because of how big the world is, but it's so amazing because of how bad the world is. He was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. And so we're confronted this morning with the irony of ironies. 
The Gospel of John is full of many ironies, says one preacher, but perhaps none is so great as the fact that here we discover a God who is for the world, but the world is not for God. Here we discover a God who who would have the world, but the world would not have him. As we heard last week, the majestic Christ of Christmas is so majestic because through him all things were made. Nothing was, was made that was made without his creating it. You recall what the apostle said that all things were created through him and for him, and in him all things hold together. But here John highlights the saddest irony of irony is the creation does not acknowledge its creator. And Israel doesn't either. The world does not know him, and his own people do not receive him, even though they were said to be twice his. To them, God had had said in Isaiah 43, Now thus says the Lord, It is I who created you, who formed you. It is I who also have redeemed you, that you might be mine. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. In the words of J.C. Rowell, Christ came to the very people whom he had brought out of Egypt and purchased for his own. He comes to the Jews whom he had separated from all the other nations of the world. He came to those whom he had revealed himself by his prophets. He came to the very Jews who have read of him in the Old Testament scriptures, have, have seen him in types and shadows as those sacrifices went on year after year in the temple. He comes to those who by the profession were waiting for the Messiah and yet when he came they received him not but they rejected him and they despised him and they eventually slew him. Sadly and tragically Israel has forgotten her creator and redeemer. Sadly and tragically it's Isaiah chapter 1 all over again where where God lamented over Israel, saying, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey knows its master's crib, but Israel does not know me. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation of people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. In the days of Hosea chapter 11, he said it this way, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing the bales and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took him up by the arms. But they did not acknowledge that it was I who healed them. They did not acknowledge that it was I who who led them with cords of kind, with bands of love, that it was I who who stooped down to feed them. John brings to our attention this morning this, the, the rejected Christ of Christmas. And in so doing, he holds up a mirror, doesn't he? He holds up a mirror, as it were, so that we too might see that were it not for the grace of God and his mercy, we we too would, would reject this light of the world. 
Were it not for his amazing grace, the, the damning words be written over adoration you are see. He, he came to his own, they did not receive him. Are we keenly aware of the extent of our sin nature this morning? Do we not also resist the light of the world? Is it not our natural inclination to, to hate the light and to love darkness? To reject Christ in our hearts? To say, I will not have this man rule over me. It is too much. Don't we all sing those words in truth? Prone to wander. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart. Take my heart, Lord. Take and seal it for thy courts above. And so we come to understand more fully the kind of Savior that we need, don't we? And John shows the kind of Savior that God has provided. That although he has resisted, although he has rejected, he has not rejected us. For we have a great Savior. We have a great Savior whose message for us, even this morning, is, is and always will be a message of grace. It isn't that we need this morning. God to, to speak to us from heaven through his word and say, I'm still being gracious. I've sent my son into the world for sinners like you. That although you resist him in your hearts, he does not do the same to you. Do you see your need for this light, for this amazing grace of God in Christ? Do we appreciate that? Boys and girls, do you understand the, the grace this morning that you have a Savior who loves you even in spite of you? That who loves his people even when they resist and reject him? If you understand that, listen to what John says in verses 12 and 13. But to all who, who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who are born not, not of blood, not of the will of, of the flesh or of man, but who are born of God. Although the Lord Christ was rejected by the world, although so many of his own did not receive him, there was yet a, patient, a faithful remnant patiently waiting for Christmas. There was yet a faithful remnant patiently waiting for Christ. Because God always always, always, preserves for himself a church in this world. And to those who believed on his name, he gave the right, the privilege to be called children of God. To those who received this light in faith, he gave the privilege to be called children of God. He adopted them into his father's family. He, he reckoned them his own brothers and sisters of whom he is not ashamed. That they might be called sons and daughters of the Lord Almighty. Few in number and despised by the world as they are, says one writer, they are cared for with infinite love by the Father in heaven who for his son's sake is well pleased with them. Which is to say, boys and girls, that despite his people's sins, despite our sins and shortcomings, God loves his people and he always will. Isn't that good news this morning, boys and girls, that God sees you as you are in Christ, that he doesn't love you or, or value you according to the grades you get on your report cards? 
or how fast you can run around a track or how many balls you can shoot into a basket at a time. Aren't you glad that the God of the Bible, that the Christ of Christmas is nothing like Santa Claus who's got a list, who's checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty and nice? Because we've all been naughty, haven't we? We've all been bad. We have not kept God's laws perfectly. We haven't obeyed mom and dad as we should. And we all deserve lumps of coal in the stockings. And yet our God is a God of grace who lavishes upon us the riches of his grace even in spite of the fact that we reject him and resist him, piles grace upon grace on us. The rejected Christ of Christmas enters a world of, of meritocracy where, where everything, our grades, our pay, our status is all earned. And for those who receive him in faith, he takes them out of that world of meritocracy and places them in a new world of grace. He, he does for us what, what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. God delivers us out of that domain of darkness and he transfers us over to the kingdom of his own beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And in time, as Ryle writes, the Father provides his own with everything that is for their good. In eternity, he will give them a crown that fades not away. People of God, it is too wonderful to consider how how our God, who is the creator, the just judge of the universe, whom we reject and despise, that he should look upon rebels like us and count us his children. And yet that's precisely what he's done. Taken rebels like you and me and made us his children. We need to keep this truth and treasure it in our hearts, people of God. Because this is at the heart of the gospel message, isn't it? That once we were, we were far off, resisting Christ, rejecting Christ, and yet he brought us near by the blood of his cross so that we might cry out in faith, Abba, Father, be called sons and daughters of God. As the psalmist says, God knows our frame. He, he remembers that we are dust. But even as he did in creation, so too he does in, in recreation. He breathes into our nostrils the breath of life as we're filling our, our empty hearts, softening our hard hearts by his spirit to receive this glorious light of the world. For his sons and daughters, John says, as they have not been born of blood. They haven't been born according to bloodlines or ethnic heritages, not according to the will of flesh or of man, but of, but of God himself. For the birth that John describes here is far beyond human strength. We need to recognize that this morning too, don't we? Parents, do you recognize that, that that your children taking hold of the promise isn't something that, that just happens. But God has to do a great work in the heart, that he has to lavish his grace upon your children, that they might be born again, sons and daughters of God. 
And so I need to pray the words and, and live the words of the Apostle Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused us to be born again to a living hope. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the dead. How will all this affect your Christmas celebrations? Will it not cause you to celebrate with great joy and thanksgiving and praise? How can it not? How can it not when you consider that, that the same rejected Christ of Christmas has not rejected us and he never will? See what kind of love the Father has given to us, says John, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And so we are. Children of God. This needs to be the refrain of our lives. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. That we're not orphans. That if we have indeed received this Christ rejected by the world but, but chosen and precious in the sight of God, then then it's not as though we're orphans trying to clamor our way into the Father's presence, trying and trying, fighting and fighting our way into the family. But by faith in Christ, children of God is what you are. Praise be to God, congregation, that the rejected Christ of Christmas has not rejected us, and he never will. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you and we do give you thanks. We give you our praise and our adoration. We consider the wonder that the light came into the world, but the world did not know him, and his own people did not receive him. We see that propensity in our own hearts, O oh God. We see that inclination in our own hearts to, to resist the Christ of Christmas, to, to accept the baby in a manger, but not the King of kings, the Lord of glory, who demands our everything. And so we give you thanks for new birth, for new hearts, new wills, to embrace the Savior. We thank you, O oh God, that we can pray to you as children of God, that we aren't clamoring our way into the courtroom, but that we're in the living room with the Father who loves us. We thank you, Lord, that you see us in Christ, that you do not value us according to the systems of this world. That you aren't concerned or overly concerned with, with what we're able to do, but with who we are in Christ. May we live this message of grace as we receive this message of grace every day. For Jesus' sake, amen.